grape growing has flourished in and around Council Bluffs for decades. In fact, that tract of land where Abraham Lincoln High School sits today, that was one of the earliest vineyards. Algernon Sidney Bonham purchased that land for 25 cents an acre in 1846 and brought in grapevines from St. Joe to plant. But turning grapes into wine isn't always easy, and it hasn't always been smooth sailing for the grape industry in southwest Iowa. So let's learn more about it. Grapes and winemaking, the topics today on Accidentally Historic. Back, 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 back. Step into our time machine. Real stories of real people. Some good, some bad, some very strange, and all Accidentally Historic. Welcome to Accidentally Historic, the podcast of the Historical Society of Pottawatomie County. Hi, I'm your host, Richard Warner, along with co-host Trudy Bino. Trudy and I have left the studio behind and have journeyed out amongst the grapevines today. So if you hear some noise in the background, that's just local wine fermenting as we speak. Trudy, who's our guest today? We have Doug Gray, who is the owner of Prairie Crossing. It seems in this part of the country that the sweet wines are dominant. Yes. And can you expand on that a little bit? Well, I, I think that's just what people tend to prefer around here. Um, one of the things that, that impacts the grapes that we grow is that they have to be winter hardy. They have to be cold hardy. Um, so like the grapes that you normally grow or see growing out in, you know, like the Sonoma Valley and, and that, those don't have the cold winters that we do. Um, and a lot of the grapes that are grown here that are hybrids made to be cold hardy, um, tend to be along the sweeter line. I mean, you can still get some dry ones, but, or what you could consider drier grapes, but it's predominantly those, those sweeter varieties are what are the, are the, grow the best around here. So does the cold weather here produce sweeter grapes because they're stressed? That can be a factor. Grapes are cyclical in a way. It all depends on the weather. Do you have a good growing season? Does it get too hot? Do you get enough water? Do you get too much water? You know, too much rain? And every now and then, I believe it is healthy for the grapevines to have a good cold snap. There is a long history of winemaking in Pottawatomie County. The whole thing ties together very nicely with, County, with oh, yes. the Pottawatomie yes. County. There's, there's actually a very long history of Iowa winemaking. In fact, that's one of the one of the books that I've been reading to kind of just you know, educate myself on, on that background. Because I've, I've heard Andy talk. He did a talk for us um, for the Historical Society a few years ago. And it would just intrigue me some of the facts that he had. So when we decided to take this over, it's like, well, I need to, I think, brush up on that. So I know better what I'm doing. And yeah, the winemaking in Iowa goes back to the mid-1800s. Um, and actually, um, the, the, one of the first large-scale vineyards um, was around Davenport. You know, because back then we were still considered part of the West and it was still kind of wild. But as the expansion continued moving West, um, you know, and of course we got in and kept on going. Well, then that Vena uh, culture continued to expand as well. And it was actually in Council Bluffs, it was the late 1800s where great growing really kind of took a foothold. Um, and because of the positioning of Council Bluffs, you know, along the Mississippi River, you know, we had um, the railroads start, you know, was a big, uh, the junction here, the formation of the Council Bluffs Grape Growers Association, 
created a hub in Council Bluffs for grape growers across the region because it provided a cooperative for them to bring their grapes to that could help market them across the country. It's interesting that I, I believe it was 1899, Iowa ranked 11th in the country for grape production. And then by 1919, we were sixth. Now, my dad grew up on the Mud Hollow region, that'd be in the 1920s and 30s, and he said everybody, in, including them, had a little grape patch. His grandmother had a little grape patch out there. And uh, But what happened? It seemed like that dad talks about all of the grape growing and all, and then somewhere in the 1940s, 50s, seemed like it kind of went away. Grape growing in Iowa really started to kind of get hindered around 1916, uh, what they call early prohibition. You know, prohibition actually started nationally in, the in 1920, but Iowa had started passing resolutions four years prior to that to make Iowa a dry state. So grape growing was still okay, but the winemaking was not. It became illegal. So that had a large impact. Um, and then probably one of the bigger things around 1940 was the, what they call the armistice blizzard. One of those crazy blizzards that happens every now and then um that basically just destroyed a lot of the vineyard um, because of the the snowfall and the cold temperatures it takes a lot to kill a grapevine but when it's really really cold and just like just like your trees they get brittle and then you punch a pack a bunch of snow on them because even with the leaves gone and the grapes gone they'll still bear a lot of weight and then they'll just snap and so the armistice blizzard did a lot of damage um, to the iowa grape crops um, and then as you advance another couple decades, um, then you started getting into the herbicides. Most of the herbicides that are used um, in the farmland, which we are surrounded by, um, are very, very bad for grapes. What do you attribute the resurgence to? So it, it, was, it was, you know, the early prohibition, the armistice blizzard, herbicides, and then there was one of the other things that kind of led to the early demise in the mid-1900s was government subsidies, okay? Because they sub, no grape growing is not subsidized by the government at all, but they do subsidize what they call row crops, which is corn, soybeans, which throw a rock around here in Iowa, you're gonna hit a cornfield or a soybean field. Um, so those were subsidized and that attracted people that were growing grapes to shut their vineyards down and start growing those kinds of crops. So that kind of led to the demise. And it, it actually then, grape growing in Iowa kind of went by the wayside for a few decades. Um, it wasn't until about 2000 um, that Iowa started seeing a, a resurgence. And I, I think a lot of that can be attributed to just people themselves is starting out with little vineyards. I mean, ours is only about five acres, so we're not, we're not huge. But people just wanting to branch out again. You know, microbreweries were becoming a thing. Microwineries started becoming a thing. Um, and through the early 2000s into the present day, um, they've seen that resurgence. And so now there are multiple wineries across the state of Iowa. And they all have, uh, you know, a lot of them will have similar wines. You know, like a lot of them grow Edelweiss and a lot of them grow um, Concord. But everybody seems to have a different way of doing it. They put a different twist on their wines. So a, a Concord here might be different than a Concord, you know, in the middle of Iowa out by Des Moines. Um, but they're all, I, I can't say that I've ever had a bad wine in the state of Iowa. What are the ages of your 
great find. The previous owners first did did their first planning, I believe, in 2002, right about the time Great Growing started to research. And they opened their tasting room for business, which would have coincided with their first harvest in 2007. So, because it takes a good five to seven years for the grapes to start producing well enough that you can harvest them and use them. And so I would say the oldest vines here are probably about 20 years old. The lacrosse um, is starting to wane a little bit. Those are probably the oldest ones. They, they get, you know, just like a tree, they get, they get old. Um, the bark starts stripping off. The roots don't, you know, grow, continue to grow as much. And they start to die off. So they're starting to wane. 20 years is a good run. 20 years is a good run for a grape. What is the time frame from picking to bottling? That depends on our stock. So um, the wine, making the wine itself from harvest to um, when we can actually start blending it, using it for the wines that we're going to make um, is about a month. Anywhere from, anywhere from, say, four to five weeks. It depends on some of the grapes we will crush right away and, uh, uh, and, and press the juice right out, run it into a vat, kick off the fermentation process right away, and it'll be done fermenting in two to three weeks. And then it's, it's usable for what we, whatever we want to make. Um, some other types of grapes uh, or some of the blends that we, we want to age on the skins. So we'll actually crush them, that press that I showed you in the back room. We'll actually run them through that distemmer crusher, but we'll put them back in one of those big square plastic vats on the skins so that they will age on the skins because it imparts color and some tannins that we want um, to add additional character to the wine. And then we'll let them sit and I'll, I'll come out here every night and stir them up just to keep them kind of agitated. And we'll usually let those sit for about a week or so. And then we'll um, pump it out of those bins, then pump it into the press and squeeze all that juice out and then kick that off again. So that generally takes, like I say, about, let's say four to five weeks. And we'll have grapes coming in during harvest season. Our general harvest is starts, we target around mid-August through mid to the end of September, where we'll have every weekend we'll have either we're, we're picking our grapes and getting grapes from other growers or vice versa. And we're, so for probably a good solid four weeks, I can guarantee every weekend we're out here on the crush pad um, processing grapes. You know, one, one interesting thing, any wine that I've ever had that was made out of a St. Croix grape has always been a dry wine. And so I thought that that was the grape. But the St. Croix grape itself is one of the sweetest grapes I've ever tasted in my life. But what happens to that process, no matter how sweet the grape is, when you ferment it into wine, it's all dry. Because keep in mind, the fermentation process is the yeast eating the sugar to produce the alcohol. They're not just eating the sugar that you introduce, they're eating the natural sugar. One of the things that I'd like to try this year is to hold back some of that St. Croix and not introducing the tannins. It'll still come out dry, but I want to re-sweeten it and make a sweet St. Croix wine. And how long should one keep an unopened bottle of wine? That, that's actually uh, hard to say. 
drier wines will hold longer. They'll last, generally last longer. Um, it's been my experience over the many decades that I've been drinking wine. Um, sweet wines do not fare well if you keep them for very long. Um, we generally say that you should probably drink your sweet wines within about a year of purchasing them. Um, a lot of people ask, well, why do you store corks on the side? Um, and when we, when we package them, we actually package them upside down. And the purpose of that is to keep the corks wet. By the way, if you notice some noise, we're, we're actually doing this on location. We are in Prairie Crossing's, what did you call it, production room? This is our production room. Okay, so we're not in the studio here. Trudy and I came out amongst the grapes, and we're getting the real scoop here. So does the soil make a difference? The soil does contribute um, uh, quite a bit to that. Um, one of the reasons that they've attributed, at least by what I've read, um, that grapes have done so well on this side of the state is because we're in that Mississippi Delta area. So the sand or the, the soil is very loose and has some sandy components to it. Um, and the grapes just tend to grow better. They, the, the roots can go deeper. Um, and then again, if we're, if we're using cold hardy grapes, they just seem to thrive on this side of the state. Can you talk about how the process is different for sparkling? Yes. Now we we do have a, a, a sparkling wine, and we make one for the for the Squirrel Cage Ale. We make one for ourselves here as well. Um, that takes specialized equipment that we don't have. So we actually uh, have an agreement with um, Tabor Family Vineyard out in Baldwin, Iowa. Amazing operation, and they've got some wonderful wines. Um, Paul Tabor is a, is a legend in Iowa winemaking, and he's he's brilliant, and he has all that equipment. I am experimenting, I'm doing some research and development on hard ciders. And so the hard ciders generally need to be carbonated. So I'm learning a lot about that myself just by, I've done some research online and then a lot of it is trial and error. Does the alcohol content vary a lot between different types of wines? It's generally pretty consistent. Like in our, our regular wines, like uh, the Edelweiss, the Concours, um, they're generally around, say, 10 to, 10 to 12%. Now, our portfolio wine and other dessert wines, um, in fact, I'm, I'm getting ready to order some cherry juice. Um, now, there aren't any big cherry productions around here, so I do have to order that from a, a wholesaler out east. Um, but that's used to make our Cheers for Cherry. That alcohol content in our portfolio is a little bit higher. That can get up to around 14, 15%. And those, those are, that's why they're in smaller bottles, because they, they will sneak up on you. What's the difference between an expensive wine and a cheap wine? You can go in a restaurant and see on the wine menu something for a few bucks to a few hundred bucks. What makes the difference? It's a, it's a supply and demand in a way. It's like, while the wine that's for $100 a bottle might be amazing. I'm not gonna pay $100 for a bottle of wine. I, that, that's just me. Somebody else may think, I'm willing to try that. Again, it's, it's do you want it or do you not want it? I'm of the mind in my experience, and I, I have had some expensive bottles of wine, and they just, I wasn't real impressed. What's the difference between a bottle of wine and boxed wine? Not much, really. I mean, it's it's, the general process is the same. Their process is 
they decided to use box. Boxes are probably cheaper. It's convenient. You can get a little. You don't have to worry about the bottle slipping out of your hand, you know, the box slipping out of your hand if it's if it's wet. They usually have little carry handles on them, so those are convenient. But I, I think overall, it's your palate. We have a private squirrel cage jail label wine. What went into designing these wines? Well, it was the board vice president Jason Lamaster's idea. Um, and he knew that I was a big wine drinker. <laughs> and so he approached me and said, who, who do you think we could talk to? And I immediately gravitated to Prairie Crossing, the previous owners. And Julie and I came out and talked to him and said, hey, this is an idea that we're running by. What do you think? And he, no hesitation at all. He's like, yeah, I think that's a great idea. What do you want? And I said, well, I, I think uh, I would like something from a, to start out something of a on a dry version but not too dry because i think i felt that that would be more reminiscent of what they actually would have been able to get away with making in the jail but then to appeal to the customers something along the sweet lines those first two he kind of came up with the idea of what he thought would work and that's how behind bars and doing time were born um, so those rolled out in 2019 and then in 2020 we came back to andy and said, how about doing two whites for us? So then now, because the behind bars is a, is a very deep red color um, and doing time is a blush. And it's like, well, let's come up with two whites. And he said, yeah, that's a great idea. You think of what you want, you blend it. And so my wife and I took the challenge and we spent a relatively long <laughs> weekend um, blending different kinds of wines that they that they already produce because what we wanted to do was not interfere with their own wine production and so what we thought of doing was let's take wines that we know they're already going to make and just come up with blends that they are not doing and that we don't know that anybody else is doing and so we had all of their wines and just started playing with them and we tried a little bit of this a little bit of that and just from a taste perspective, which our, was our approach. It was really kind of funny because when we came back to Andy and said, these are the blends that we want to do, he thought we were nuts. Because one of the wines that we came up with, the lockdown, um, we blended as a blend of Edelweiss and Brianna. Now, both of those are, are typically sweet grapes. They're, they're very, very similar. And he had never done that before. He didn't think that that was right. And he, he approached it from the chemistry standpoint. You know, well, you have the, this, this level of acidity and this pH and these grapes, they have this. And, and he kind of just went down the line and we're like, well, we just went by taste. And he's like, okay, let's give it a try. He blended them to the proportions that we had proposed and he instantly loved it. He's like, I never would have thought of doing it this way, but you got something there. So that's what he went with. And then uh, Solitary was the other one and he appreciated what we did with that one, and so that's how those were born. And you said you have many events coming up here? Yes. Unfortunately, with the tornado that hit in June, um, we lost our event center. We hired a new event center man or an event manager that has done a phenomenal job. Shout out to Megan. And we're gonna try and keep the tradition uh, summer vibes series, where we're every, I believe, every other weekend we will have, and I believe it starts in May, we're gonna have probably somebody out here every other weekend doing a performance. Um, it may be uh, a single performer, it may be a duet, it may be a band, um, but we're gonna have all that all through the summer. Um, there was a 
an amazing winery down south, down in Thurman, um, called Sugar Clay, um, that was operated by uh, Frank and Amy Faust. Uh, I know Frank from from way back in high school, and they had an incredible um, event that they did on Memorial Day called Wine Stock. It was a combination of, of Woodstock and wine. It was kind of that peace and love and let's get together and have a good time and drink some wine. And it was an, a huge event. It was, And they had, at times, six different bands, five, six different bands performing, and it was like a, a seven or eight-hour eight hour deal. And when they unfortunately closed down in 2019, well, of course, wine stock went away. Um, we have approached Frank and Amy um, out of respect for their venue and asked their permission to let us take it over. We are taking over wine stock from Sugar Clay, and that is slated for, I believe, the first weekend in June. I, June 3rd, I think, because I'd have to look at my calendar. It's a Saturday. We're not going to do it on Memorial Day, um, but we're going to do it on June 3rd, and we've already got, I think, five bands lined up. Fingers crossed that that will be a huge event. Watch our Facebook. Um, but I believe there is a craft fair mid-May, and then we traditionally, or the previous owners had had a tradition of kind of closing out the summer into fall, doing a fall craft fair. Um, and I believe we have that set up as well. So we're actually going to do two craft fairs this year. One in, I'm pretty sure it's May, but don't don't hold me to that. And then the other one I think is sometime in late September, early October. I think she's got some plans for some Sunday fun days. We're going to try and put together, um, get some like, you know, yard games, like giant Jenga. And some friends of ours uh, gave us a yard Yahtzee. I haven't played it yet, but, uh, you know, big giant dice. And and just have one of those uh, some weekends where we're just come out to the winery and have some wine and play some yard games if you want. Seems a perfect setting for croquet. That's a very good idea. I mean, we've got a we've got a big yard out here. I like that idea. I'm going to mention that to Julie. We might have to set so that'd be a good one of those good fun day, you know, weekend fun days. We've been talking with Doug Gray, a board member of the uh, Historical Society of Pottawatomie County, also the owner of Prairie Crossing Winery, just uh, east of Council Bluffs, near Trinder. But we're doing the show live from from the winery. Doug, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for coming out. I, I appreciate you having me on your podcast. Thank you. The Accidentally Historic Podcast is produced by the Historical Society of Pottawatomie County in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Muriel Wagner is our president. Cat Slaughter, our museum's director. Local history, some good, some bad, and some very strange. We'll look forward to sharing more of it with you next time on Accidentally Historic.